As messengers of the truth, we must be prepared to warn of God's coming judgment in love. As messengers of the truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth that Jesus is Lord of all, the truth that God's word is inerrant, infallible, it's perfect, the truth that God is a God of love, but he's also a God of of a holy righteousness that must deal with sin. The truth that we're not all God's children. No. Scripture says to them who believe he gave them the right to be called the children of God. As messengers of the the gospel, we should be prepared. Why is the gospel good news? Why is it good news that we're saved? For one and only one reason, because wrath is real. Good news isn't good news until you understand what hell is. What wrath is. Who God is. But we should do it with the right attitude, not gloating, not happy, not hey, 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 ha, 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 he, 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 we're in and you're not. It's not the attitude. The attitude should be, please, by ambassadors of the holy and true God, knowing who he is, please repent. Turn around. Submit to God. And it should be done in love. Not from a position of arrogance, but a position of sincerity. Knowing who God is. As we go through the text, there's going to be three truths that Peter highlights as he prepares. Prepares us to be faithful messengers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's not easy. It's not not, not easy. It's not a walk in the park. We're in a war. And the Holy Spirit through Peter, he equips us to handle this war accurately. Without further ado, let us begin 2 Peter chapter 3 starting at verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. And both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind, a mind tested by sunlight. That, that word sincere there means a pure mind. Sincere mind by way of reminder. Verse 2, that you should remember the predictions or the proclamations and other translations, predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Verse 3, knowing this first of all. So what I want you to know, knowing this first of all, that scoffers were come in the last days with scoffing. Scoffers are those who make fun of or ridicule. Those who when they run out of facts in the debate, they resort 
to name-calling. Those are scoffers. We spoke about that in Sunday school within the, the, the debate of Genesis and uh, dealing with the age of the earth and evolution and whatnot. When they run out of facts, they just call you a dumb Bible believer. Stupid for believing that God actually created the animals and man. Those are scoffers. If you want to look at a scoffer, simply turn on the news and watch a sincere, a, a, a sincere Christian debate anything from a Christian perspective. If he or she is good, name calling is not far away. They scoff. Peter wants us to understand. Here's first and foremost. Here's the first point. We will be ridiculed for the truth. We will be ridiculed. We'll be called names. Get ready. Prepare. When it happens, don't be surprised. And you'll be called the most vile of names. When someone is talking to you about truth and they feel as though they were, they're, they're losing or the, the conversation is slipping, they'll start calling names. The ridicule. And as I've said before, all name calling is designed is to get you to react emotionally and to stop thinking. And they do that well. True Christians will be called homophobes, judgmental, hateful, stupid. And I, I, can't, I can't, given our atmosphere and our climate of what's going on, I, I can't just not address it. Christians are going to be attacked for our stance on homosexuality. We are and we will be. And, and, and it doesn't make much sense if you really think about it. How many times have you looked at the news and seen what's going, over, going on in the Middle East? If homosexuals are caught, they throw them off of buildings. Cruel. If they're caught, they cut heads off of homosexuals. Now, if that's the case, why is the homosexual movement going after Muslims? Why are they coming after us? When's the last time you saw a church throw people off of buildings for what they do in their homes? When is the last time? But then why are they coming after us? You see, it makes no sense unless there is one person pulling the strings behind the scenes. Why are they coming after us? Why? Because we have the truth. That's why. And the ultimate war is against truth. It's against Christ and his church. And, and the movement that, that I, I think is going to come to a head in June of this year, when the, 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 the Supreme Court makes the judgment, And it will be that judgment, maybe not this year, maybe not next year, but it will be that judgment 
that will force us, the church, to make a stand. It was a movement that started off by simply saying we wanted to express our opinions, that being the homosexual community. And so they started coming out of the closet. Then we want civil unions. They got it. Now they want marriage. They got it. Seems like it'll be culminated in June of this year. And even after marriage is passed, now the next step is to silence all opposition. You see, the argument has come full circle. It started off with just simply wanting to express their views. Now we can't express ours. Businesses are lost. Lawsuits are brought. And we will be ridiculed for the truth. For our simple stance on what God has said. Persecution isn't coming. It's here. Peter says as you prepare. Watch out you will be ridiculed. For the truth. Look at verse, look at verse 4. He goes on. They will say where is the promise of his coming? He articulates what their arguments going to be. It's been 2,000 years. Where is your Jesus? Where is he? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. It's been 2,000 years. Things have seemingly gone on. No problems. Where's this judgment? Where is he? Verse 5, for, for they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Look at verse 6, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was diluted with water and perish. Here's the second point Peter wants us to remember. God judged the world a first time, and he will judge it again. You see, as we read the scriptures, we cannot, we will not, we must not overlook the fact or retreat on the uh, historical account of Noah. The flood is real. It is a, a, a fact of history, and anyone who's honest looks at the world in an honest way. The, the, the marks or the proofs of the flood, they're evident everywhere. And so Peter's argument is, if the flood is true, if God judged one time, what makes you think he won't do it again? Proofs of the flood. Bring the pics of the Zargos Mountains in western Iran. It's a mountain range in western Iran, as you can see it. The mountains are 9,000 feet above sea level. 9,000 feet above sea level. Go to the next picture and look at the pictures. You see how the, the lines are wavy? The strata. It's not straight. It's curved. 
Well, how does that happen? How does solid rock get curved? For rock to bend, rock has to be soft. It has to be wet. And as the, the, the plates in the earth, when the great floods, as you read the account, it burst open and, 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 and the lands began to move apart and, 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 and the flood came, the rocks being wet and the lands crashing together, it bent. Because it was wet. Because 9,000 feet above sea level, those mountains were wet. And so as the lands crash together, you've been like this, the water recedes, the air hits it, it cools, it dries out, and now it's stuck like this forever. If the flood isn't real, then you tell me, how does rock 9,000 feet above sea level get bent like that? There's proof all over. And if God judged the world in water before, what makes you think he won't do it again? Here's another one. Here's another proof of the fact of the, 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 the historical flood in Noah's days. Did you know that there were around 270 accounts of the flood? 270 different cultures? How do we get all these stories all over the world? Other than the Bible. Here's a famous one. There's a famous story, a Babylonian story. A record um, about a great uh, flood, a deluge, in the tablet and scriptures found in Babylonia. The tablet refers to an older tablet from which it was copied, but only fragments have been found in older copies. Okay? Another, um, so you have in the account of a Babylonian inscription about a flood. Flood and Babylon. A story outside of the scriptures in the culture of Babylonia inscribed on tablets about a worldwide flood. Here's another one. One in Hawaii. Long after the death of uh, Kinahona, the first man, the world became a wicked, terrible place to live in. This is written down um, in Hawaii. There was one good man left. His name was, in this inscription, Nu'u. He made a great canoe with a house on it and filled it with animals. The waters came up over the earth and killed all the people. Only Nu'u and his father was saved. This is an inscription in Hawaiian history. Here's another one. The Tolik, found in the, uh, the histories of the Tolik Indians of ancient Mexico is a story of the first world that lasted about 1,700 years, was destroyed by a great flood and covered even the highest mountains. So you have an inscription in Mexico. Mexico, Hawaii, Babylon, Israel, 270. About 270. How does that happen? How, how do people, and this was before the internet was around, how do all of these cultures come up with this story if it's not real. If it didn't happen. If God didn't judge. How does this happen? 
Peter refers to this. You guys can mess around and live like there's no tomorrow. And take the attitude. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. People, you did it once before. You'll do it again. Peter refers to the fact that God has judged it before. He'll do it again. He continues, verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the one day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact. Peter says, let me explain something else. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and as a thousand years as one day. Here's the third one. God sees things from an eternal perspective. God sees things from an eternal perspective. And as he's reasoning with these people who have these arguments of why it's taking so long. Peter answers that, that, that argument by simply referring to who God is. See, God's not like you and I. When we make our plans, we make our plans if we're fortunate and blessed, we make our plans on an 80-year scale because that's about all we have to live. God's not like us. His plans aren't confined by 80 years. He's eternal. He's not on a short clock like we are. When he plays chess, he plays it not for 80 years, but from, from an eternal perspective. He doesn't have the, 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 the problem as death and old age that we do. And sure, God knows the difference between a day and a thousand days. He's not confused. He's eternal. He sits on top of time and then he interacts in time. So he knows what a day is. He made it. He knows the difference between a day and a thousand years. He made them. He made time. Peter's point is, he's not rushed like we are. And why is he not rushed? Why is he, seems as though he's holding off verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. slowness. But here's why God is. He is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter, in essence, says God doesn't come now because when he comes, he will bring judgment. When he comes, because of his holiness, Many will go to hell. 
And it breaks God's heart as it should ours. God's not happy. He's not gleeful. He's not slow because he's a procrastinator. He's not slow because he's busy or tired. It's been 2,000 years because for 2,000 years he knows that when he comes back, judgment is coming with him. And his desire is that all should reach repentance. That's his heart. He's not gleeful that those who reject him, his justice will place them in an eternal hell. This outreach on July 11th. As the leaders got together, it was born out of a desire that when we stand before judgment seat, we won't be judged like an unbeliever. But when God calls us to him and we give an account for how we handle this, this precious thing called the gospel, did we do everything in our power to build God's kingdom? Did the neighbors around this church hear about the gospel? Or is someone over in that complex going to hell saying they never heard of it? And they were a hundred feet from a building called New Hope. It is our desire, it is our hope that each and every one of us take this to heart. And while we will not shrink back, while we will not be afraid to speak about God's judgment and holiness, his righteousness that demands a sacrifice, we won't shrink back from that at the same time, at the same time. With humility and love, we should, we should preach this thing called the gospel because we love people, because the judgment seat of Christ is real and it's coming and we'll see it and we'll be there. I know I have some family members who will be there on the wrong side. That's their choice. Can't make it for them. And dare I say, you'll have some loved ones on the wrong side. My prayer is that when that day does come, you can rest in the fact that you did all you could do. That if they are sent to hell for all eternity, it wasn't because you kept your mouth closed. It's because they rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh. 
The world hates fire and brimstone preachers. But dare I say, I think our culture was better when we had them. Because as a culture, we understood that each and every one of us were going to be held accountable before a holy God. Now you don't hear that. Here at New Hope, we do believe that the judgment is coming and that we should prepare for it. My prayer is that we have courage in the face of ridicule. My prayer is that we never, ever, ever shrink back from speaking of our God who is holy. And my prayer is that we know God well enough that we can tell people the only reason why God is holding off because when he comes, oh, what a day it's going to be. He's not slow. He did it before. And he's going to do it again. Let us pray.